Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to tell you what the Ishbitzer says about incense, because it ties into this whole idea that we're just going up and up and up and up and up. He quotes a teaching that I saw that the Eretz Svi also quoted. So this is like for the greatest, greatest minds, holiest minds, like an important teaching from the Zohar. Incense, and remember, the, the incense offering in, in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple, was really like very, very special. And it's different, right? Because you're not bringing an animal. Incense is not an animal, right? It's not like loaves of bread. It's nothing like that. It's like a whole different category of offering. And if you want to know, like, well, I mean, I get that it's a different category. Was it higher or was it lower? I mean, it seems so different. Like, like if you were to offer an ox, an ox was like really expensive, like, people didn't just have oxes, right? Like, an ox was like, like a Lexus, right? That's like a, an expensive proposition. So maybe this is just some incense. This is just whatever. Maybe it's lower. No, it was higher. It had its own altar. There was a golden altar where this incense was offered in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Mishkan too. Okay, wow, so it had its own separate altar made out of gold. Wow, that's pretty cool. But that's just the beginning. How about the fact that the culmination of the entire Yom Kippur service was when the Kain Gadol, the high priest of Israel, goes into the Holy of Holies only once a year on the holiest day of the year, and what does he do? He brings the incense offering. And that's forgiving all the sins. Okay, wow. Okay, so incense is really, really high. I get it. Now, even on a physical level, they say that the sense of smell is the most spiritual. And by the way, if you look at the whole incident of the eating of the tree of knowledge from the Garden of Eden, it says that each one of our senses was damaged. It says we saw the fruit, we listened to the snake, we touched the fruit, we ate the fruit. That's four, of the five cent- four out of the five senses right there. It says nothing about the sense of smell. So all of the rabbis learn now that the sense of smell was not damaged. And you know, you wanna hear something beautiful? Shabbos is a miniature of the Garden of Eden. It's like a taste of the Garden of Eden. Just like all of our needs were provided for us in the Garden of Eden, like before Shabbos starts, all the cooking is done. Everything is done. It's like you're walking into the Garden of Eden. Everything is prepared for you. And what do we do when we leave Shabbos? We smell the incense. We smell the... See, because even though we're leaving the Garden of Eden again, right? We're leaving Shabbos, which is like leaving the Garden of Eden again. But the sense of smell was never damaged. We give one smell before we leave. You know why? To remind our souls and to reassure our souls that the connection to the Garden of Eden is still there and was never broken. We're heading into the week. We're heading into, you know, we're still in exile. But the soul is reassured and comforted by the fact that the connection is unbroken and remains. We're still tied to paradise. Okay, so these are all just different levels of incense. Let me tell you what the Ishbitzer Rebbe says. So he quotes the Zohar. This is the teaching that I also saw from the, the Eretzvi quoted. That in Aramaic, the word for is ketira. And ketira in Aramaic is linked to the root kesher, which means not. K-N-O-T, not. Okay, so just to say it simply, 
the idea of incense and a knot, K-N-O-T, are linked together. That's what the Zohar is teaching us. So now, how do you explain that? How is incense a knot? Well, if you think about it, you've got a pile of this scent and a pile of that fragrance and a pile of that one. And then when you burn it, they all get mixed or knotted together. Okay, that's again on a very basic level. But now the Ishpitzer says something really mind-blowing. He says that in the order of the incense ceremony, what you have is the from it's 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 a miniature, it's a microcosm from the beginning of the creation of the universe until he says ad sof until the end, and then later he says olam haba. So wait a second. Let's just take a moment to appreciate how exalted that thought is. It says the burning of incense is basically in miniature. You're acting out the beginning of the world all the way to the final fixing of the world and our entrance into the next era, which is Olam Abba, the world to come. And he says that's what's really being shown is that the desires of every single person since the beginning of time, whether the person is aware of it or not aware of it, that everything a person does, deep, deep, deep down, again, often on a totally unconscious level, is all for the service of God. You see, a lot of people like to quote the fact that the Ishbitzer seems to say that we don't have free will. And that's what makes him such a controversial Rebbe. Right? But he was so beyond deep. I'll just tell you how I understand what I think perhaps he's saying. Right? I think he's saying that we do have free will. We absolutely have free will because it's a, it's a clear mission in Pirkei Avos that God knows everything, but at the same time we have free will. So it doesn't make sense that someone as great as the Ishbitzer Rebbe, who is as devoted to Torah as the Ishbitzer Rebbe, is going to say something opposite from what it says in the Talmud, in a Mishnah. It just doesn't make any sense. So I think... He's saying we do have free will, but the roots of the roots of the roots of a person is that we're just a piece of God. And since God is drawn to God and God himself is doing the will of God, that underpinning our free choice, before our free choice and our consciousness even begins, the essence of our life force is drawn to serve God which means that everything that we're going to do ultimately is going to be for the sake of God, even when we go against God with our conscious free choice. So do you see how those two things can work together? How, how someone could sort of like do a great injustice to him and say, well, then you don't have any free choice. No, 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 you do have free choice. It's just that at the roots of the roots of the roots of your essence is godliness. And God is connected to God. God is going to do the will of God. The breakthrough that he's saying is that even when a person does the wrong thing, ultimately, ultimately, in the end of days, looking back, you're going to see how that was actually leading the world toward the right place. Now, we are going to have to take responsibility for our actions. And we can't just stand before the heavenly court and say, yeah, but the Ishbitzer said, <laughs> it's not going to fly. It's not going to fly. We have responsibility and accountability. However, we should also understand that everything, 
everything is leading toward the revelation of the oneness of God. And so that's what he's saying is the knotted together thing. What happens is all these different things ultimately show how everything is tied together and that everything was for the sake of heaven. And that's what's going on in terms of the incense. And then I want to add two things to the Ishvitzer. One is, now I understand why the incense offering of all things was the one brought on Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies. Because basically it's showing, you know what, everything that everyone did wrong, but really, God, you know it was all for you. That makes sense to me. And then I'll say something else, which I think is just beyond, right? This world starts in a material place. We're still in that phase of, you know, the evolution, the unfolding of reality. But eventually, this world is going to become this very spiritual entity, right? Think about what happens with incense. It starts off as a clump of this spice and a clump of that spice, and it gets mixed together, and then it gets burned, and then it transforms into a cloud. The material becomes spiritual. In other words, in the actual offering of the incense spices, you see the unfolding of the destiny of creation going from the material to the spiritual. Right now we're in the middle of a, a very amazing period in the, in the Jewish year. We've just gone from Pesach, and now we're heading toward Shavuos, toward the giving of the Torah. And the Ramban famously says that Pesach and Shavuos are actually one long holiday, and that all the days in between, these 49 days in between, these 50 days, are basically one long cholamoit. So, so this is one big holiday. And there's a beautiful illustration of this from the Ishbitzer Rebbe. We know one of the things that we have as part of the Seder plate is an egg. And so a lot of people want to know, like, what does the egg stand for exactly? And the Ishbitzer says something which is so amazing and creative and, and spot on, which is that an egg is just half the story. What's the other half of the story of an egg? Is the chicken. And so we put it on the Pesach Seder table, Seder night, to remind us that Pesach is just half the story, that the other half of the story is receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. And so the idea is that Pesach, freedom and revelation, divine revelation, and a divine mission, what to do in this world. In other words, the point is not just to be free. The idea is to be free in order to accomplish something. So what is it that we're supposed to accomplish? Well, then we get our marching orders at Mount Sinai. We get the secrets to the universe, basically. So a lot of people don't know that the burning bush where Moshe gets the instructions to take the Jews out of Egypt, the burning bush was at Mount Sinai. Now, why is that so significant? Because God says, take the people out of Egypt and bring them back here. So in other words, the entire liberation of the Jews from Egypt was in order to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, the reason why that's so important is because people sort of just intuitively arrive at the following incorrect thought, which is God frees us from Egypt. He's got approximately two and a half million people in the desert, and now God has a problem. What am I going to do to keep them busy? <laughs> I know, I'll give them the Torah. That's a great activity. That'll, that'll keep them busy for the next several thousand years, right? So that's not what happened. It's not that God needed to give us something to do once he freed us. The entire freeing us was only for the sake of giving us the Torah, which, of course, existed, according to the Talmud, 974 generations before the world was created. And that God made the entire world out of the Torah. 
now we can additionally appreciate what the Ramban says, that Pesach and Shavuos is one long holiday, and that all the days in between are like the days in between the first day and the last day of Pesach, or the first day and the last day of Sukkot. It's all Cholamoy. These, all these days are Cholamoy. Okay, great. But now I want to give you another way of looking at it. Now that we understand how essentially they're, they're one concept, because you can't have freedom without a mission. See, here's the thing. A lot of people want to be free, but they, they don't know what to do with their freedom. And if you're free and you don't know what to do with your freedom, you just become enslaved to your desires of the moment. Do you understand? In other words, we are built to serve. That, that's just what it is. That's just the reality of the human condition. And it makes sense because think about it. Who are we? What are we? We are essentially our souls. And what is our soul? Our soul is a piece of God. So the peace of God within us yearns for the greater aspect of its own self, which is Hashem. So in other words, the soul inside of you is yearning to connect, yearning to serve. That smaller piece is, is yearning to be reunited with the larger piece. So we have it within ourselves. So, so what are you going to do? In terms of service, if you don't know what to serve, you're just going to serve whatever you can find to serve. So you'll serve Bloomingdale's, right? Or you'll serve Apple computers. You will be directed in terms of your absolute essence expressing itself towards service. And then if you are disenchanted by all these other things, what you'll end up doing is as I said before, you'll just serve yourself. You'll just serve whatever desires you have in the moment. You see, I saw something amazing from the Teferis Yisrael who said that if a person is free just to pursue their desires, then the soul becomes enslaved to your desires. Say that again. If a person is just free to pursue their own desires, and when I use the word desires here, I'm talking about things on a less exalted level. All right, we're going to talk about that more. Let's, let's use the word taiva for now. What is taiva? So taiva basically is, is misdirected passion. And it can be misdirected passion toward anything. Like, if you just love potato chips, you can have a taiva for potato chips. I don't know if you know this, but there is a potato chip of the month club and <laughs> that I personally seriously looked into subscribing to. And, you know, you can go on the website. It's sort of like, we... I, lo I love this word, by the way. This is one of the modern words in, the, in, in consumer land, which is curate. Don't you love the word curate? What, what does curate mean? That means that you just like go on five different websites, pick, pick what they've already gone through so much work in terms of gathering, and then you say, well, I like this shirt, and I like that handbag, and I like these shoes, and I'm going to put them all on my website, and now I'm going to present to you the David Sachs Curated Collection. <laughs> Like, okay, I guess that wasn't that hard, right? But, but anyway, so they will curate the finest potato chips from, from local brands around the country. What I'm trying to tell you is that you can have a misdirected passion toward anything. Okay? Now, now listen to this. Again, from the Teferis Yisrael, let's repeat, let's repeat the idea. If someone is basically just free to pursue their own Taivas, without a greater mission, the soul becomes enslaved to the person's taivas. So again, it's another iteration. It's another way of conceptualizing this idea that if you don't have the ultimate to serve, 
which the soul longs to serve is the ultimate. It doesn't want to serve any counterfeit. It wants to serve that, it wants that ultimate homecoming. The soul, which is a piece of God, wants to connect with Hashem himself. But if we can't direct the soul to that place, it will follow whatever our urge is. It needs to be led. That's kind of like sad for the soul that it can be directed by the body to the wrong place. So ideally, if someone really connects to this greater love, then that's how, then that's how to fix this whole, this whole problem that we're discussing. So let's, let's take a step back and let me tell you something very, very, very amazing. This is from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haber. And he talks about this idea of fixing passion, fixing type. You ready? He says, normally speaking, the normal dynamic is that water puts out fire. Water puts out fire. In other words, you have the opposite force counteracting the other thing. Okay, very good. That makes sense. It's very intuitive and we see zillions of examples of that in, in the natural world. Okay. But what Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says about love is very instructive. The greatest love that exists in the entire universe, the greatest love that exists in the entire universe is the love for God. And if a person can connect themselves to that love, that love is capable of properly directing a lower love, which we'll call taiva again, a misdirected passion, the greater love will uplift the lower love and properly, properly channel it. To me, that's fascinating because you don't have water putting out fire here. You don't have opposites battling each other. What you have is another higher form of love lifting up the lower form of love. In other words, they're both the same thing, and yet one, the greater one, is fixing the lower one. That's really, really intriguing. And the love of God will do that. The love of God will lift up, will, will lift up all the other loves. Okay. So now, I want to return back to this idea of Pesach, freedom, and divine direction. What are we going to do with our freedom? Again, we need that higher purpose. Otherwise, we're just chasing after our desires. So what is the higher purpose? That's the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now listen to this. Here's the new idea. What I, what I want you to understand is that it's not the following. Okay, I'm going to give you a narrative right now. And this narrative is, is going to sound on the surface correct, but it's going to be missing a bigger point. We get out of Egypt. We cross the sea. We start receiving the manna. Then we get the Torah at Mount Sinai. In other words, it's a series of events. It's not just a series of events. Or, now historically speaking, we can also incorporate... Lagba Omer is in there, right? Where the secrets of the Torah come out. That's the yard site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar. That happens in between on the way to Mount Sinai, okay? That's later in history. But in terms of how we go through these days, that's another landmark along these days. So what I've just posited for you right now is a very linear notion. We leave Egypt, that's one event, we're still on the same plane, it's still the same line. Then we get the mana, then it's the secrets of the universe are revealed, then we get the Torah at Mount Sinai. Okay, it's dots along a single straight line. That's not what it is. It's an escalation. Everything is going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. In fact, all of history, every day, since the beginning of creation, is going up and up 
and up and up and up. Now, I heard the following from Reb Shlomo. It's a, just a great way of just looking at reality. We know there's a very classic teaching, which is that every generation is actually moving further away from the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai 3,300 years ago, right? Each generation, it's one generation later. So it's like, you know, that, that the transmission is there and the transmission is still accurate, but we're getting generations away. And so they call that the Yeridos Hadoros, the going down of the generations, spiritually speaking. That's true. But Reb Shlomo adds a very important PS, which changes everything, which is that while that is true, every generation is also getting closer to Mashiach. So every single generation is also going up and up and up and up. So that's just another way of looking at things. But again, every generation is going up. Now I'll tell you something else that I heard from Reb Shlomo, which is that it seems like, well, you say if we're going up and up and up and up, you know, it seems like every generation keeps on making the same mistakes over and over again. Isn't that an argument against saying that we keep on going up and up if we're making the same mistakes? So listen to what Rib Shlomo says, something fascinating. He says, not making the same mistakes. We're making new mistakes. On the outside, they may look like the same mistakes, but they're actually new mistakes. Different variations, different variations. And that the soul, the collective soul, is learning. And I know that I've had that with my wife many times in our marriage, where she'll say to me, I asked you not to do that. And the truth is, is that I, I was conscious of not doing that, but I made a different mistake <laughs> that looked like the identical mistake on the outside. And so she gets very frustrated. You didn't listen. And it's like, no, no, no. I very much had in mind what you said to me. This is a new mistake that just looks exactly the same as the old mistake from the outside. And so you see that actually on the generational level as well, that we aren't making the same mistakes. We're making new mistakes. So while that's frustrating, well, why do we keep on making mistakes? Okay, but that's a different conversation. The point is, is that we are learning and we are going up. Okay, so now let me show you how that works even within Pesach itself. Because I think I was like most people in thinking the following. Everybody knows Pesach is seven days in Israel, eight days outside the land. And we know that the first day of Pesach is a holiday. And we know the last day of Pesach is a holiday. Or if you're outside the land, the first two days and the last two days. Okay, fine. Well, what's the last two days all about? <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's the seventh day of Pesach. That's when the sea split. Okay, that's great. I think like most people, I always thought, well, the first day of Pesach, I understand why that's a holiday. We're getting out of Egypt, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's a giant holiday. But the seventh day? Okay, I get this, the sea split, but the sea splitting seems like not quite as great as just getting out of Egypt. But it really is an escalation. From the first day to the seventh day, it really, really is going up and up and up and up. And I want to discuss that because that's going to give us like a little mini window on understanding how we're going up between now till we get the Torah at Mount Sinai and how we're always going up since the beginning of time we're still going up until we're going to reach the final days. So that's just another very much more exalted way of experiencing the world, that each day is higher than the previous day. This is amazing, actually. Okay, so let's talk about how the seventh day of Pesach is actually an escalation over the first day of Pesach. And this, this holiday, I was waking up in the morning, and I wasn't thinking about this subject. And the thought that I'm about to share with you just kind of came into my head, just like, fully blossomed. So it just seemed very striking. So it seemed special. So from that standpoint, I want to share it with you. 
knowing that that was the context. I thought to myself, you know, the first day of Pesach, God puts all this geula, that means redemption. God puts all this geula in the world. And then I thought, and the second day there's more geula. And then the third day there's more geula. And the fourth day there's more geula. And the fifth day more geula. And the sixth day more geula. And on the seventh day, there's so much redemption in the world that it literally rips the fabric of reality open. And that's the splitting of the sea. That's the seventh day. And then, of course, the eighth day is called Achron Shel Pesach, where we read about Mashiach. Remember, the Zohar says that the future redemption is going to be based on God taking us out of Egypt. So Pesach is a microcosm to understand the future redemption as well. So on the seventh day, there's so much redemption. The world becomes so saturated with it that it literally rips open reality. That's the splitting of the sea. And then what's right behind it? Mashiach. And then I thought, you know, remember, why did God create the world? Okay, so we can talk about this endlessly. But to give you one very central foundational answer, the answer is so that we could have free choice, so that we could exercise free choice. And as I shared with you in the past, the Avstraf Sarebi brings in his Hakdama to the Chumash that the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez. Bez is the number two. And he, there are many, many things that that, that Bez stands for. Many, 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 many things. And I'm still learning new things. It's so amazing as a study in itself, the first letter of the Torah. You know, it's good and evil. It's heaven and earth. It's male and female. It's this, the natural order and the supernatural order. It's the hidden and the revealed. It's the oral Torah and the written Torah. It's the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah Tov. It's, it's so many things. But in many ways, I think the coolest thing about the Torah beginning, remember, the Torah is the blueprint of reality. So the first letter of the Torah is sort of, so to speak, like, you know, you walk through a gateway. Right? Like the, the, the letter Bez is the gateway into this universe that we inhabit. Right? It's going to contain basically everything. So the letter Bez also stands for free choice. Because, again, Bez is the number two. Why is that free choice? Because I can do this or I can do that. So let's go back to Pesach right now. It keeps on swelling with more and more and more redemption until the fabric of reality rips open. That's the splitting of the sea. But now you have the two walls of the sea, which is free choice. In other words, even amidst the abundance of the revelation of redemption, even amidst that, Hashem maintains our free choice. We can continue to do this, or we can begin doing that. It's awesome, right? Now, I heard a talk over Pesach. Mr. Sutton gave it and heard it in Miami. And he shared the following idea. He said, you know, a lot of us have the word should in quotation marks. Shoulds, shoulds in our life. I should do that. I shouldn't do that. Should probably also do that. Right? Like there's a lot of shoulds. And then there are also in our lives musts. And he said something I thought very striking. He said, the shoulds you don't do and the musts you do do. <laughs> right? And I thought, wow, that was actually very, that, that was very, for me that was very, very insightful. That really resonated. Because I know I have a list of shoulds in my life and I'm not really doing any of those shoulds. So he said, if you want to make progress in your life, think of a should that you have in your life. Something that you tell yourself, and this is all very personal. Everyone's going to have something else, okay? Think of something in your mind 
where you say to yourself, I should do that. And he said, change it into a must. Change that should into a must. And now you're ready to make a breakthrough in that area. Because you are very capable. The musts in your life, you are doing. And when something becomes a must for you, you have a great track record in terms of doing it. So you know if you change a should, whatever it is, this is personal and private and everyone's going to have a different answer for this. If you change, if I, I'll speak, let me put it in the first person because I need to do this. If I can just take one of my shoulds and turn it into a must, I, I already feel it inside myself that I know that I can make progress in that. I just have to make the decision to change the should to a must. Now listen to this. This is, this is crazy. I went from hearing that lecture right to, I guess it was dinner or something like this, and my daughter was there. She works for the government, and she does policy work for the government. Okay? She said to me, what did you... Tell me one insight, one takeaway from the class that you just attended. I said, well, he talked about changing shoulds into musts. She said, that's what I do for a living. I take policy statements and I have to rewrite them. And the policy of the government, which I was trained to do was, if I ever see the word should, I have to change it to the word must. I was, what? I mean, you talk about something, can you imagine anything more hyper-specific than that? And to hear literally minutes after I just learned that, that that's what my daughter does for a living? She changes shoulds into musts? As in, as in, just so you, as in employees should be careful to do X. She crosses out the should, and when it leaves her desk, it now reads, employees must be careful to do X. Okay. <clears throat> so, so again, we want to escalate our lives. We, we don't want to plateau. We don't want to plateau. Like, when we stop growing, that's the beginning of dying. So, so, so plateauing is really the enemy. Of course, we want to move at a sustainable pace, right? We don't want to max ourselves out so that we crash. Because the Yetzirah, you know, sometimes appears to us as a rabbi. And so it puts on the garb as a rabbi and it tells us to do this and that. And it wants to get us to a level that we can't sustain because it's willing to trade X number of mitzvahs in the here and now for the person to abandon it entirely. That's one of its great tricks. And we don't know that that advice is coming from the Yetzirah <clears throat> from the negative side because it, 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 masquer it masquerades as a, as, a, as a spiritual presence. So growth is essential, but it has to be sustainable growth. So that's really, really, really important. And then if you have questions about that, you talk about it with someone who, you know, understands these things and who, you know, knows you. And that's important. And there's even the idea of moving a little bit backwards in order to have something sustainable so that you can move more forward, right? So even a step backwards can be progress because you're backing away from the fire that otherwise might just disintegrate. So this is, the, all these things are very, very important. Okay. So now listen to this. Again, everything is escalation. So we're going from the first day of Pesach to the seventh day of Pesach, but really we're talking about this toward climbing Mount Sinai as well. I'm just giving you the model in the initial stages to show you that the ramp is going up. Okay. So now this was also a thought from Mr. Sutton. I thought this was excellent. I'm going to build on it a little bit. But he says, you know, we have 10 plagues in Egypt, and then we get to the seventh day of Pesach, 
and we're kind of stuck at the sea. The Egyptian army is coming. The Midrash says that wild animals were coming from the left and the right side. Directly at us was coming the, the Egyptian army. We felt like that was the end. It was gonna, we were going to be wiped out entirely over there. By the way, one of my favorite stories when my son, my first child was like, I don't know how old he was, maybe four years old or whatever it was. I, I sort of like was trying to teach him this idea and... And, you know, I, I remember I, I, I was like on one knee so that I could look him in the eye while I was telling him that. And I said, you know, there we were by the sea and, and, and the Egyptian army was coming right for us. And there were wild animals coming from either side. Where were we going to go? And he said, to the kitchen. <laughs> so, which was right behind him at the time. So, you know, anyway, I think I probably traumatized him for the rest of his life there. But anyway, it was, I meant well. So <laughs> what can I do? So, so we have 10 plagues, and then we get to the sea. And here's my question. Here's my question. We know with each of the 10 plagues, like when it was darkness for the Egyptians, it was light for the Jews. So in other words, it wasn't just each of the 10 plagues. It wasn't just something negative that, that happened to Egypt, but it was simultaneously something positive that happened to the Jews. Now, with that in mind, let me introduce sort of like a, a new kind of wild sort of idea, okay? Why wasn't the splitting of the sea the 11th plague? Why can't we say that the 11th plague was the drowning of the Egyptian army? And just like with every plague, something good happened for the Jews at the same time. And the Jews crossed through the river. Right? We, we, we crossed through the Yamsuf, and the Egyptians drowned, and that was the 11th plague. Like, if you learned that from the time that you were learning these things, you would have gone, oh yeah, there were 11 plagues, and that's what happened with the 11th plague. That was the bad thing that happened to the Egyptians. That was the positive thing that happened for us. But we don't say that. We absolutely don't say that. We say that there were 10 plagues and the splitting of the sea was an entirely different construct. All right, and now we get back to this idea of escalation. What is the explanation? The explanation is the splitting of the sea was different entirely because now God was looking to us to do something. Now it's evolving into a partnership. And that's the idea. We had to jump into the water. We had to initiate and jumpstart the miracle. And then the miracle comes down. Now, I'll tell you something amazing. And you can, you can Google this and see it for yourself. In Brazil, they photographed with cameras, this was just in the New York Times a few weeks ago, a lightning storm. Now the way, when, when Benjamin Franklin, who created the, invented the lightning rod, what, what, what is a lightning rod? Well, it's a metal pole that you put on top of the house, like in a high place above where you want to protect whatever's below it, right? You don't want lightning to hit the house and start a fire in the house. So you put a metal pole on top of the house, and what happens is, is that the lightning gets drawn to that metal, and then there are wires that run down from the, from the lightning rod to the ground, and the electricity will run down into the ground, and it will spare the house. Okay, so that's all well and good. That's been practiced for hundreds of years. Now, they wanted to see actually how it works. And they photographed with this new photographic technology. They were able to take snapshots, you ready for this, in the nanoseconds. And they captured, this just happened, they captured a lightning storm in Brazil with lightning rods, right? And listen to what they found. This is incredible. 
It's not what I just described. What happens is, before the lightning bolt comes down, the, the, metal, the metal pole senses this charge coming its way, and it shoots a lightning bolt up. And this has been captured in photography. And that lightning bolt going up is what draws the other lightning to it. Now, we've known about this dynamic. And I saw it. I saw it. It's, it's really quite incredible because you're like, where is that lightning bolt coming from? It's coming from the lightning rod. It's crazy. So we've known about this dynamic on a spiritual level since the beginning. Okay? It's called... That's how you say it in, in, in Hebrew and in Torah language. But in English, we would translate it from, or we say, tata. that's another way that it's said. But it, the way that you, they normally say it in English is an arousal from below. That we can initiate light coming down from above by sending the desire, the message of the desire from below to above. And that's the lightning bolt going up that attracts and brings down the lightning from above to below. In other words, on your soul level, you can, so to speak, by desiring something higher, shoot a lightning bolt into the air above you and it will bring down heavenly energy to you. I remember words that changed my life. Reb Shlomo said in the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. He said, let's say you're at a bus stop and you want to learn some Torah, but you don't have a Torah book on you. So Rebbe Nachman says, right, a Torah book is called a Chumash, right? That's the five books, the Chumash, from the word Chamesh, which is five. So if you don't have a chumash with you by the bus stop, so Rabbi Nachman says that Hashem teaches you from the chumash above. In other words, if you have the desire to learn below, Hashem teaches you from the Torah above. So the desire below can attract... Can you imagine if you... If you just opened up a book and it's like, oh, I got to learn. Oh, it's time to learn. <laughs> so you're learning, but you're not learning with any desire. But do you see the role that desire plays? Now imagine you don't even have the book, but you just have the desire. Now where are you being taught from? From the highest places. Because you're literally shooting that lightning bolt from your soul up above and it's attracting that energy and bringing it down below. So that's the idea that there are 10 plagues, and then when we get to the splitting of the sea, the order changes, and that's the escalation, because now it's a partnership. Now there's a desire coming from below to above, and that's going to bring down an even higher revelation and that's the splitting of the sea or the splitting of reality that's now ushering in an even higher light. We talked about how a higher love can quench a lower misdirected love. Now, in Torah thought, pleasure is likened unto water, but water is likened unto Torah. So water is a, like a very interesting thing. Water can either mean something that's more kind of like pleasure-oriented, which is something perhaps misdirected, or that same construct, water, can be something that's Torah, which is something that's higher-directed. And we said that the higher love can put out the lower love or raise up the lower love or quench the lower love. Now, let's just follow the imagery of the split sea. 
That same water drowns the Egyptians. That's the lower love. And it splits the sea and leads us to freedom and life and salvation. That's the higher love. You see how the higher love, which is water, raises up the lower love and allows it to drown that which is chasing after us. So you see that teaching played out in terms of the splitting of the sea, the drowning of the Egyptians with the same water that splits for us. So where do you find your joy? Where do you find your joy? And the amazing thing is, is that God wants us to be in a place of joy. And that that joy, since God permeates all of reality, including our bodies, God wants us to experience joy on a physical level as well. But not as a separate enterprise apart from him. He wants to be involved in that joy too. (laughs) Since that's the ultimate joy, because that's the ultimate connectedness. Think about it. When it says that a child has three parents, the father, the mother, and Hashem, that means that Hashem is part of the conception of the child. In other words, that joy is a real joy, and it's a very physical joy for us, but it's connected to an even greater joy. It's not the greater joy so that not I'm aware of the lower joy. The lower joy becomes a greater joy because it's connected to something greater. And that's true with everything. That's true with eating. That's true with absolutely everything physical. In other words, there isn't a denial of the physicality and the joy of the physical, but it becomes greater when it gets linked to something higher. So you're experiencing the joy on every single level, as you should. Okay. Let's stop there. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.